0: So, for those of you who have been at Christ Ridge, um, actually about, it's gone about 10 years, somewhere like that. About 10 years or longer. um, You might remember when I was the intern here. And I did a Sunday school series on the Lord's Prayer. And one of the books that I started to read when I was prepping for this series, it said that the Lord's Prayer is super important, which it is, obviously. But it said that it was important because... It is the only guide to prayer given in the Bible. Moses, this author said, gives us no commands or regulations regarding prayer. The prophets teach us little about prayer, he said, and so he says, it is Christ who teaches us to pray. And it caught me off guard a little because I was like, well, you know, what about the Psalms? Here this guy is acting like God's people didn't get any guidance on prayer, any guidance on actually communing with the true and living God until the New Testament. Meanwhile, the Psalms are this entire book of prayers and they too can and should serve as guides for how we pray. That's how we use them every Sunday morning. That's how Austin did it in the intercessory prayer this morning. They serve as guides, as models for how we should pray. So one of the things that the psalms do is they give us insight into how we can and should pray. And a lot of the psalms make sense for this. Like Psalm 23, it says, it's just very comforting to pray, the 23rd psalm. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. It's a wonderful prayer, full of insight as wisdom, as Dr. Velcher showed us last fall. And there are many other great prayers in the Psalms, like Psalm 6. It says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, for my bones are in agony. Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of Your unfailing love. Psalm 6 and Psalm 23 are very comforting psalms to pray, and so it's easy to see how we should use them as models for prayer. But then we look at something like Psalm 88, and the tone of this psalm is a little bit different. It starts out well enough, you know, O God, Lord of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night. It begins by orienting us to the God of our salvation, reminding us that we can and should cry out to him day and night that we should, in the words of Paul, pray without ceasing. But then the psalm doesn't take long to get a little bit darker. It says, My soul is full of troubles, my life draws near to Sheol. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead. Your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults, they destroy me. You here being God. The emotions this psalm hits are different. So how do we feel when we read this psalm? It says, My soul is full of troubles. He's in this deep inner tor- turmoil. He says, You have put me in the depths of the pit. He feels almost forsaken by God. My companions shun me. He feels without friends. Shut in and cannot escape. He feels trapped and helpless. Further that, he continues. He feels that as if he's dying. He's crying out to, help for, to God for help. But he also feels as, as if God almost turned his back on him. He feels surrounded by darkness all day like a flood, and he feels just alone in all of it. These are not exactly joyful emotions. He's not just offering outright praise to God. He feels almost abandoned by God. David in the 23rd Psalm talks about, he speaks of, you know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. But the psalmist of 88, he seems to be in the valley of the shadow of death, and he is in the midst of that valley, but he doesn't seem to feel God's presence with him. In the midst of the valley, he finds himself asking, Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? This psalm seems pretty dark, but here it is. And we know that all scripture is God-breathed and is written for our instruction. So what are we to learn from, about prayer from this psalm? I'm going to suggest at least three things. The first is that God understands us. The second is that because of this, we can be honest with him. And third, that because of this, we can approach him with confidence. We will see that even in the darkness, he is the God of our salvation. So first, we can understand, we can learn that God understands the full range of the human experience, from supreme joy to just crushing sorrow. And let's unpack that. Now, what would our assumption be about prayer and about the Christian life if if all the prayers that we were given were just nothing but, you know, praise the Lord all day, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's just green pastures and still waters, and that's the only prayers that we got. If all the Psalms were all the prayers were just green pastures and still waters, we would know that we need to praise God in our prayers. But that, we might be tempted to think that's about it. We might start to probably think that, you know, if our life isn't all green pastures and still waters, that we must be doing something wrong. And that's, in essence, the prosperity gospel. You know, if you're really faithful, your life, it will be all green pastures. And if it's not, then you've done something wrong. You won't have to go in this, you know, valley of the shadow business. And then we have Psalm 6. It says, heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. The psalmist is making a clear petition in that psalm. You know, I'm hurting, Lord. Heal me. Prayers such as that in Psalm 6 tell us that we can petition God for his aid to heal us and to comfort us. But then we have psalms like this, and we see here that our Father understands the full range of our experience and our emotions he understands our inner pain he understands our inner distress our loneliness our hopeless our helplessness even the near hopelessness that sometimes seems to creep into our hearts that these sort of emotions are in the bible shouldn't surprise us just skimming through the bible tells us that it doesn't offer a sanitized version of the world It doesn't offer a sanitized version of life or of our reactions to it. There are dark, shocking, and even painful stories throughout the Bible. So Scripture shows us people who think and act and speak like normal people. If if the Bible left out these stories of, of David's temptation, of the constant failure of the Israelites, of if the Gospels never told us, all just like the dumb answers that Peter gave to Jesus... How his disciples abandoned him, plotted to betray him, as we talked about this morning. How likely would we to believe that God's word could help us if these sorts of stories were not within it? If we read the word of God and saw nothing but just these magnificent paragons of the faith, these faultless saints just striding through history, if these were those that God called his people and used to bring about his plans, where would that leave any of us? Weak and frail as we are, prone to temptation and failure. But the word of God is not about a picture-perfect world full of noble people who always make the right choice. It is very much the opposite of that. They rarely make the right choice just beginning to end. God's Word is honest about these experiences. His word is honest about the sorts of things that happen in this world, honest about the reactions that people sometimes have to them. As Michael pointed out this morning, we, we can sometimes tend to think that our God doesn't understand what it's like to have physical pain like we do, or to feel the pain of sickness or betrayal. But here and elsewhere and all throughout the Word, we see that He does, in fact, understand That he knows and empathizes with our pain, whether physical, emotional, or spiritual. And so through the psalm, and so through psalms like this, the second thing that we can see is how we are invited to be honest with God about the things that we face. We see through this psalm that we can have these sort of honest responses. Too often we see we as Christians can seem to think that you know we're just supposed to put on a brave face and just a smiling face no matter what comes our way, no matter what happens. The Christian you know we're just just to put on a brave face, smile through it all. In ancient Greece, there was this group who took a similar approach, and they were called the Stoics. Nowadays, we use that word to describe somebody who you know they just they just don't seem like they have any emotions. Whatever happens, they just they're just unphased everything just sort of bounces off of them their their emotional centers are just kind of kind of broken they don't work nothing happens they're non-responsive like kind of like a robot they're purely logical you know you don't need any emotion but we see here in psalm 88 the psalmist he's, he's not a stoic he is full of life he's full of feeling and he's pouring that out to god now that in itself is not necessarily encouraging on its own You know, just validating people's emotions is no ultimate end in itself. Especially since our emotions, they can, um, I hate to break this to you, but they can be misinformed. And when that happens, they can deceive us. If our emotions are based on false realities, then we need our false realities confronted. This is why we need to continually stay in the Word, because the Word helps us stay grounded in that reality. This is part of why it matters what you believe. Your emotions, they aren't just random. They're informed by your beliefs. So, having sanctified beliefs will help you have sanctified emotions. And actually, as an aside, your emotions actually give you a bit of insight into what you believe. You may say you believe one thing, but your emotions can, they can betray like deeper layers of what you actually believe. Paying attention to what our emotions speak to us. not to what speaks to us, but what, what sparks our emotions can tell us a lot about our heart and our mind for good or for bad. So if we're grounded in false realities, as we often are, one of the things that we may need is a loving correction. But when they are grounded in reality, one thing we do see here is validation. One of the regular issues that I deal with in my role as a chaplain is the loss of loved ones. And since I do ministry with soldiers, one of the first things that they often need is Validation, to know that their grief is okay, because they haven't always been raised to know that their grief is okay, that it's okay to grieve. They've often been raised to hide their grief, to suppress it, to push it down, because, you know, if it shows, well, that's weakness. And many people have been raised to hide many things. Maybe they were never allowed to express anger in their home, or their sadness, or their grief. They learned to walk on eggshells around their parents and were just, you know, they just had to suppress everything to keep from triggering their parents' wrath. That's the story of far too many people. And here, if that's, our, if that's where we're at, we do need validation to, to know that we can be honest with our Heavenly Father. We don't have to walk on eggshells around Him to know that expressing ourselves honestly to Him doesn't mean His wrath but His love. But we do need more than just validation. That's where much of modern therapy stops. But it's not where the Word of God stops, thankfully. Because if all of this is true, that the Word of God speaks to people who are in the real world, who have real griefs and true angers, then it's also true that the promises of Christ, of redemption and salvation and new life, come to people in this real world. It's not a world of felt board cutouts where all the characters are always smiling and the sun is always shining. No, Christ comes to the world where we actually live, came to the world where we actually live, and entered fully into it. Our Lord is not aloof of this reality. He's not aloof to the reality of this world or to the reality of the ways that we sometimes feel within it. This is part of what we confess in the Nicene Creed. You know, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit incarnate of the Virgin Mary became man, not just like partially man, but fully man. And it's because of this that we can pray. So let's go back to the fact that this is a prayer, that it is an act of faith. What we see then is that Going to God with our anguish, with our doubt, and even with our fear, it is an act of faith. We know that we are to go to God with our sickness, with our physical pain, to ask for healing. We know that we are to go to God to confess our sin and to ask for forgiveness, and for Him to keep us from temptation. All that's there in the Lord's Prayer. But we rarely hear that we are to go to Him even with our doubt, even with our darkness, when we feel empty, lonely, abandoned, even by our Father. Psalm 88 reminds us to run to God even in these desperate moments, not away from Him. We're not just to go to Him to confess that we doubted last week or that we were, you know, we we felt like we were in despair last week, but we are to go to Him within the doubt, to cry out to Him in the midst of the turmoil. So in Psalm 88, we're invited to be honest in the here and the now. So we have said that this Psalm. It talks about how, or it helps us understand that God understands us and how this truth invites us to be honest with him. And in light light of this, during our first time reading through this psalm, we might be expecting at some point that it's going to make a turn, that it's going to turn around. At some point, the psalmist is going to say, You know, all this bad stuff is happening, but it's okay because you, God, are my Savior. So I shall not fear. Praise the Lord, everything is going to be fine. But how does this psalm end? With darkness. Anybody in the Christian music business would surely be like, it can't end like that. Like, if you're submitting this to a Christian record company, you get turned down immediately. It can't end on that sort of note. Christian songs are supposed to be like rainbows and butterflies, and if, it, if it, they start dark, at least they have to end happy. You can't end in darkness. It reminds me of a story I think Michael tells sometimes of visiting another church and being at a service where they, were, they started singing through A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. But they were crunched for time and so the music director was like, okay, we're crunched for time so we're just going to sing the first verse. All good and well. you know, Most psalms song, most you can do that with. But you can't do that with A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. Because how does that first verse end? It ends with Satan seemingly unstoppable. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. We sing that and we know you can't stop there. Like we have to continue. We have to continue on to where it is Christ who must win the battle. We have to continue on to where the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. We have to continue to where the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So does it bother us that this psalm doesn't end on a positive, happy note? That it doesn't end with a turn towards, you know, but it's all okay because God is my Savior. That the psalmist doesn't turn and say, as many of the other psalmists do, that it'll be for the best because God is in charge. He is sovereign. Again, why is such a seemingly dark psalm a dark prayer in the Bible? What are we supposed to learn from it? How is it meant to build us up and edify us? We get that the earlier sections can point us to the fact that God will meet us where we are, that God is not unaware of our trials or tribulations, but this last section, the end, it really drives that point home. The psalm never makes that turn that we might expect. The psalmist is crying out in the moment. He is not yet to the point where he can make that turn. Not yet to the point where he feels God is is in control of everything and working it all for his good. That's not where he's at yet. And this is important. He is turning right in the midst of the crisis, in the distress, the depression, right in the middle of the darkness. Completely open and honest with God about what he's feeling. He's not yet to be rescued. And there's not even for him, it doesn't even feel like there's any rescue in sight. And even still, he trusts that he can pour himself out to God. So as you examine your, your life, your prayers, are you like the psalmist? Can you be honest with God? Or do we feel the need to whitewash our prayers? How often do we feel comfortable just truly pouring ourselves out to God? Now, again, we saw that the psalm teaches that our God understands us, and that because of this, we can be honest with him. But where is the confidence? Where is the confidence in this psalm? I wouldn't wouldn't blame you for saying, you know, this psalm doesn't sound very confident to me. It sounds more like he's an Israelite, and he's kind of just grumbling in the wilderness, grumbling against God. Are you telling us, you know, we should grumble and complain against God? Obviously not. We know that we should not complain and grumble against God. That's what got the Israelites in trouble. In Exodus 16, it says, you know, in the whole desert community, they grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. But there's a basic difference between the psalmist here and the Israelites. And in short, it's this. The Israelites were not addressing their concerns to God, especially not in this way. They were airing their doubts in an attitude of cynicism. And they weren't, and they were actually doing it towards Moses and not even towards God. You know, they, talking to Moses, you know, it'd be better if we had stayed in Egypt. We had meat pots there. They weren't praying to God. They weren't pouring themselves out to their father. They weren't offering prayers of trust, trust that God would, at least if nothing else, hear them. No, they were offering these sort of cynical complaints to Moses because they had no trust in God. The Israelites were basing their cries on the assumption that God didn't really care about them. And that's the biggest difference in the world. It's the difference between someone who has faith and someone who does not. The Israelites based their complaints on the assumption that God did not care about them. The Israelites had been raised in Egyptian paganism, more or less, for quite a while. And although God was in the midst of rescuing them in that very moment, they didn't suddenly just get, you know, a seminary level understanding of God. Many still viewed him basically, he's just, you know, he's kind of like a stronger pagan god. He got us out of there. And the pagan gods, though, they don't really care about their people. So the Israelites assume that, you know, maybe this God doesn't really care about us. Maybe he just brought us into the wilderness to kill us. You know, that's kind of how the petty, the petty pagan gods are. That's the kind of thing they might do. They don't really understand God yet. And so they don't even bother addressing their concerns to God himself. They don't trust God. They lack faith. But the psalmist knows better. He knows that he is addressing his Lord, the God of his salvation. And this is key. This is key. So let's go back to the beginning of this psalm for a moment. Now, we can't deny that this psalm ends on a dark note, but I want to suggest this evening is that what it actually ends on is an assumption. It ends on an assumption because the assumption laying behind this entire psalm, one assumption that acts as a foundation for the whole thing, that gives the psalmist the courage and the confidence to pour out his heart in this way. So really, we have to begin at the beginning, or we have to end at the beginning of the psalm Because that's what makes this entire psalm possible, this entire prayer possible. And that assumption is that that this psalm begins with, that undergirds the entire thing, is that first line, O Lord, God of my salvation. It's that first cornerstone that provides strength for the rest of the structure. Who is all of this being prayed to? What is the underlying foundation? It's that God is my salvation. The entire psalm is built upon this fact. Every line refers back to this fact. That's who it's addressed to, to the God of my salvation. My soul is full of troubles, the psalmist says, O God of my salvation. I'm a man without strength, O God of my salvation. I am helpless, O God of my salvation. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, O God of my salvation. That's who it's all addressed to, to the God of our salvation. That's where the confidence is. Each line is directed back towards the beginning. Each line is addressed to our Lord, the God of our salvation, even this last one, even the darkness. He lifts up even the doubt and the despairs and the darkness to his lord because he is the god of his salvation the entire underlying premise of this prayer is not being given to an indifferent god it's being given it's not being given to an impersonal god to a pagan god to a god who is aloof to the cares of this world no it is given to the lord and the entire underlying assumption is that this lord is the god of our salvation The God that I trust, that he will hear me. And that if he hears me, he will. And if he he hears me, and if it is his will, then he will act. Again, this is what separates the psalmist from the Israelites in the wilderness. He is crying out in confidence and faith to the God of his salvation, not in cynicism to a God that he thinks doesn't care. Not in skepticism because he wants to go back to his old life, but in confidence so the psalmist cries out, knowing that God will hear, and we can do this too, even more so because now we have Christ. Michael set this up, pointing up wonderfully this morning. He pointed out how Jesus knows your pain. If you're in physical pain, chronic pain, he knows. If you're in emotional pain, he knows that, spiritual pain, he knows that. Christ was a man who poured himself out so much in prayer, as I said, to cause damage to his body. He did not hold that in. So whatever we're we're dealing with, God knows and he understands. As the author of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so he says, in light of this, let us draw near with confident, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace in the time of need. That is what the psalmist is doing here, drawing near to the throne of grace in the time of need. He cries out in faith knowing that his God, that though he is without strength, this is the God of his salvation. That God is his salvation. And we know this too, and we know this even better, because as we are told in Romans, when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this text says something that I love, in Romans, not Psalms, that when we're in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our temptation, in the midst of our trials, when we feel that we are without strength, Spurgeon tells us, he says, come then, if you are without strength, this text is still true. When we are yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Can you still believe that, however other things may seem to contradict it? Will you still believe it? God has said it, and it is a fact. Therefore, hold on to it like grim death, for your only hope lies there. And that is where our hope is, that when we are yet without strength, he is the God of our salvation. We can't hold on to him, so he holds on to us. So what are we to do with all of this? Well, first off, it's a great reminder that we can pray always. We are told by Paul to pray without ceasing, and if we were you know, told to only pray when we're in a good mood, and when we're feeling, you know, especially holy, then that would be an extremely tall order. i met some people who, you know, they think that they can't approach God until they get their life together, until they get their emotions in order, and they have everything under control. So they have to be, you know, all prim and proper, kneel down in just the right way, fold their hands in just the right way, and they get everything just right before God will hear them. But that's not the image that we get from the Psalms. Realizing that we can pray in our anger, we can pray in our anxiety, we can pray in our sorrow, it makes a little more sense how we can pray without ceasing. Our prayer life is not, doesn't have to be contingent upon how holy we're feeling, our, our emotional state. We don't have to wait till we're feeling especially holy to pray. And in fact, you, you should absolutely just not do that. You should not wait until you're feeling holy to pray. If we do that, then we might never pray. Rather, we can pray regardless of how we feel. Are you joyful? Pray your joy. Are you angry? Pray your anger. Are you sorrowful? Pray your sorrow. Do you feel virtually abandoned by God himself, as the psalmist does in here? Are you in the midst of the valley of the shadow and you honestly don't see the way out? Then pray in the darkness. Like, But chaplain, don't you know we're not supposed to be in darkness as Christians? We're not supposed to like, have despairs? The psalmist does. That's actually one of the ways you can translate the, the word at the end of verse 15. The ESB translates it helpless. The NIV translates it as that he is in despair. So are you telling me that it's okay to despair? I'm telling you that you may well face something like despair in this life. You may, come, may, may well come to a place where everything seems like darkness. Where even God Himself seems to have taken His light from you, to have withdrawn the light of His countenance, as the Westminster Confession says. And you'll have a choice. You'll have a choice to either shove it down because you don't think you're supposed to feel that way, or you can acknowledge it and bring it before the throne of grace knowing that the God of our salvation hears even your feelings of abandonment and your despairs. It's true, Paul tells us in Corinthians, he says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And because of this, we know that our despair is not our ultimate lot in life, that despair cannot be our ultimate lot in life. That we heard as this morning, that whatever you're experiencing is part of God's plan of victory for you. That he's using it for your good, and that nothing catches him by surprise because he is the sovereign God. And that because he is a sovereign Lord, he keeps his promises, and that we can trust he will never truly let us go. That nothing in heaven or earth can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But we can go through seasons. We read in our confession when we read this in our confession when it speaks of assurance. Westminster Divine states that true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted. And they say that one cause of this can be by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. And then they cite Psalm 88 in their scriptural proofs because that's what we see portrayed here. We don't know why God has withdrawn his light from the psalmist. But we know, as we heard this morning, that whatever we're going through, the Lord will use it to bring things out of the darkness and into the light. And he will always use it to sanctify us, to make us more holy, to draw us closer to him. Because as the divines remind us in the catechism that we read earlier, though we may be in the valley Yet we are never left, left without such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps us from sinking into utter despair. As believers, we are supported from utter despair. And it is this support through the Spirit that allows us almost really to pray at all. After all, the one who has truly given over to utter, utter despair no longer prays. And they don't pray because they have no hope. That's what utter despair is. It's a, just a complete loss of hope. But this psalmist has hope. Hope and trust that the true and living God can and will hear him. So next, as you examine your life, are you like the psalmist? Can you be honest with God? Are you afraid to face how you're responding sometimes, you know, to the difficult parts of your life? Do you wonder if God really welcomes your honesty? Do you feel the need to whitewash your prayers or your prayer requests? This psalm shows us that we shouldn't. Even further we know that we have a God who hears. Faith is not the presence of just warm religious feelings. It's a knowledge that you walk with a God who hears. You walk before a God who hears. This is the key theme, a key theme of the Old Testament, the fact that we serve a God who hears. Time and time again, that's what separates the God of Israel from the god of the Israel from the false gods the fact that the God of Israel hears his people. There's a regular refrain that the Lord has heard. He is the God who hears because he is the true and living God. And we know that we have a God who not only hears, but who understands. For Christ was tempted in every way. He understands our struggles, our sorrows. And this is why we can approach the throne with confidence. It's why we can pray in this way at all. Not in an attitude of cynicism or grumbling or complaining, but in an attitude of confidence, knowing that he hears us and that we will find mercy and grace. But we also see that God's timing may not match our own. That, you know, one prayer might not fix everything. And we see that he does not immediately just pluck us out of trials and sorrows. And so there's actually sort of a fourth thing that we can learn is you know that God understands that we can be honest with Him, that we can approach Him with confidence, and also, but that our prayers may not immediately be answered. At least not how we like it. And in some cases, like the case of you know Paul with the thorn, it may just stay with us for the rest of our lives. The resolution might not come this side of eternity. It might not come until the creation, until uh, the new creation. So Psalm 88 is unresolved. The rescue has not yet come. The psalm ends in darkness. But darkness is not supreme, and so he still prays in confidence. He knows that in spite of what seems seems to be a lack of an answer, that God is still the God of his salvation. He knows that in spite of what feels like abandonment, that God is still the God of his salvation, the true God who keeps his promises. The psalmist knows that, and we can know that too, that even when we feel like we are just surrounded by darkness, even when the pain feels as if it might not ever go away, at least this side of eternity, and in truth, it might not. Even then, especially then, he is still the God of our salvation. The psalmist asked God at one point during the prayer, you know, do you work wonders for the dead? From our vantage point from this side of Calvary, we can say that absolutely our God does work wonders for the dead. For we were once dead. We were once dead and he made us alive. And because he has made us alive, we can draw near to him with confidence and in faith. We can draw near to him in our anger. We can draw near to him in our sorrow. We can draw near to him when our soul is just full of troubles when we feel it as if we are drawing near to Sheol itself, even then we can draw near to God our Lord because He is the God of our salvation. Because Christ our Lord, who knows and who empathizes with our pain, has opened up that way for us. And not only opened up the way for us, but He actually takes our prayers and perfects them. He takes our worship and perfects it so that it is the prayers of Christ Himself that are given to God on our behalf. And that's a great intercession to have. We have no need for dead saints to intercede with us before God, for we have the living Christ interceding on our behalf. Our Lord Jesus himself going to the Father on our behalf. Even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays for us. Even in the darkness, he is the God of our salvation. So going back to a mighty fortress is our God, It was written based on Psalm 46, but the lyrics are a great comfort and response to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 tells us that these troubles, they surround me like a flood all the day long. But the hymn reminds us that God is our helper amidst the flood. The psalmist laments that we are men without strength, and then as the hymn says, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? The psalmist has been shunned by his companions and his friends. He feels weight and darkness and death heavy upon him. But as the hymn says, Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we pray to you now praising you, thanking you for the fact that we can come to you in prayer at all. That we can come to prayer in confidence. Confidence because you are our Father. Confidence because of the way that has been opened up by Christ Jesus our Lord upon the cross. That we have been made your children and so we can approach you as our Father. And that is truly a wonderful thing to behold. So take our worship now, Lord. Take our prayers now and perfect them. Perfect them Lord, and give us that confidence to approach you, to approach our God with confidence in the midst of the toils and the troubles. For Christ's sake, amen.